following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. So I came across the water crisis there, and I saw kids drinking from swamps, and I just couldn't believe that a guy like me could sell bottles of water for $10 in nightclubs to people who wouldn't even open the water. And yet, you know, a tenth of the world, simply because of where they were born, the situations they were born into, were drinking water that could kill them. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Hey, everybody. Great show today in the Forbes interview. We have Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water, an incredible charity that mixes philanthropy with high-tech, virtual reality, full transparency, the power of the web to deliver water to people who need it. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, buddy. You too, man. So let's talk first about water. You know, everyone thinks water is just, yeah, obviously you need it to... to to drink and to live, you know, every, many times a day, or else you're not going to make it. But let's talk about the chain effect that having not having water, having bad water, can cause people. Yeah. So the problem we've been working on is, is as you said, the lack of access to clean water for people around the world. Uh, today, a tenth of the world is going to drink bad water, dirty water. Uh, it's about 663 million people. What is dirty water? Uh, dirty water is is water from open sources. So imagine a swamp, a pond, uh, a brown, viscous river, uh, water that's often shared with animals, with cows, with goats. Uh, you know, uh, imagine for us going up to Central Park Pond, joining a long line of an hour long, you know, to then get green kind of pond-looking water. Yeah. Uh, so as, as you can imagine, lots of bad things happen to you when you drink, uh, dirty water. Uh, there are huge health implications. In fact, uh, the world health organization, uh, says that 52%, 52% of all disease throughout the developing world is caused by bad water and a lack of toilets, lack of sanitation, uh, water touches education. Uh, you know, so many of the girls that we see around the world are dropping out of school, because their, their school has no clean water or toilets. So really, water and sanitation are linked together. And, you know, a teenage girl will hit puberty, is not going to go to school for that week a month uh, if the school has no water and toilets. Mm-hmm. And there's already an incredible social pressure uh, for her to do the, the chores, the collect the firewood, go get the water. Um, actually, today, uh, 200 million hours will be wasted by women and children getting water. Just, ca- just collecting the water, carrying it. It's not even clean. Yeah. And that's what's so frustrating is that uh, in so many of these places, you know, uh, the women and girls are walking five, six, seven hours to that swamp to then bring water back that literally kills people and their family. Um, so it's a, it's a real emergency. Um, when you can bring clean water into communities, and the terrible irony is that in so many of these places, uh, the communities are living on top of the resource that could save their lives. Mm-hmm. A couple hundred feet underneath them are massive aquifers of clean water. Uh, and that's what you know we've been able to do over the last decade now is, is uh, we're solution agnostic, but bring about 10 different technologies and solutions to these different villages. 
And it's just, it's amazing being in there in that moment when, you know, clean water shooting out of the ground and the community rushes the drilling rig and there's clapping and there's singing and there's dancing and everybody's throwing popcorn in your face. And, you know, it costs about $10,000, yeah. uh, $30 to give one person clean water. How come, I mean, we take such for granted for this in America and in, you know, the West bit, basically we have, you know, we have homes with multiple, multiple bathrooms we don't even use. What we is, drink bottled water and don't bottled, even need to. Yeah, exactly. Just, we're doing it right now. <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, like, who's your, like, why do, haven't the government stepped up in these? Is it because these villages are so remote or it's corruption or it's not, a, they don't consider it their problem? What is, when you go into a, a place, is there just no infrastructure or sometimes they don't have access to a grid? What's the situation there? So 82% of the people living globally without uh, clean water are living in rural areas. So they are living in these remote areas. So it's not easy to reach them. It's not easy to dump a huge infrastructure project uh, and pick up millions and millions of people in coverage. Uh, it's these small solutions, drilling a well, uh, building a rainwater harvesting system, uh, capping a mountain spring and building a a gravity-fed tap stand, mm -hmm. uh, a filter system. All these different solutions uh, work in, in different contexts, but you know it's really hard work. And, and in the places that don't have access to clean water, the resources just aren't there. So you know, we've been working in Ethiopia for a decade now. I've personally been 30 different times to the country and uh, to visit the work. And the government is building water projects, but just not at anywhere this, you know, they're not matching the need. Yeah. Um, the scale of the problem, 50 million people in Ethiopia lack clean water to drink. You know, the, the amount of resources needed, uh, the government is making a very, very small contribution, but they've also got to build roads and build schools and health mm -hmm. clinics. And so these, the resources just aren't there. Uh, that's the government's at best. Uh, at worst, some are just doing very little when it comes to, to infrastructure and uh, and the people are suffering. So what do you, give me a typical, I mean, I know the story well, but I make sure everyone listening understands, like, give me a, t and I want to go into your origin story, which is, it's just fascinating, but let's start talking about what's a typical charity water project. Like what would be, I know there's many solutions on many different countries, but sure. what, give me a, uh, like how does the cadence of this work? Cool. Uh, village in Malawi, about 300 people living there. And they are just getting water from a, a swamp. Uh, so the first time I visit, I'm watching the women kind of shoo away the cows to get their water. Mm -hmm. Now, they were actually cut off uh, from the road by a giant ravine. We had done some wells on the other side of the ravine. So this community talks to our local partner and says, hey, if we build a road, will you bring the rig in and drill a well for us? Uh, our local partner says, sure. So the community then spends the next three months, every single household sends one person, and they fill in this giant ravine, mm -hmm. make a road. The drilling rig comes in, and in about 48 hours, just sticks a hole in the ground. Water comes out. They flush the well. Uh, six days later, every single person in that community is drinking clean water for $10,000. I mean, it, it's the, the health improves. The swamp is no more. The pigs still get to drink from that swamp. Yeah. Uh, but people, uh, the women and the children and the everyone in the village are so drinking healthier, clean water. They have more time back to actually do other things instead of you know schlepping water back and forth. Yeah, and and since we've started, there's all this economic data now uh, on the impact of clean water and sanitation. Uh, the UN published an 88-page paper that found every dollar invested in water and sanitation yielded four to eight times to that local economy. And the biggest thing is just the time saved and that time turned into income. So the women that were walking five hours a day now can go sell things at the market. They can sell rice, they can sell peanuts, 
I was uh, recently in Zimbabwe and Zambia with women selling rugs for $4 mm. that they were making with their own hands. So it impacts health. It impacts education. It impacts uh, the local economy. Uh, it's just kind of this wonderful thing to work on. And the great thing about water is that it's one of the very few things, Steve, in the world that everyone can agree on. You know, in, in, a, in a divisive time, right, every – no matter what religion, you're, you know, religious background you have or none, no matter what political background you have or racial background, everyone can come together and believe that humans need clean drinking water yeah. to thrive, uh, to be healthy, to be, to be prosperous. So it's, it's actually been an amazing issue to work on, a unifying issue to work on for, for the last decade. And it's, it's amazing. The funny thing is, or maybe the ironic thing is that it's unifying. You know, everyone drinks water every. Everyone needs water every day, no matter where you are in the world. However, I f- feel that for Americans or people in wealthy countries, the idea of not having water is so foreign to us. It sometimes might be hard for people to empathize with that. And you guys do a fascinating job about getting that message out there and putting people, you know, in that swamp putting people in that 13-year-old girl's day who's walking six hours to carry back, you know, jars of water. Or, you know. So tell me uh, about how you guys are using technology. Sure. This is fascinating. Well, there's a story uh, that, that impacted me really deeply. Um, it, it was a story of a 13-year-old girl from a village uh, in uh, Tigray, northern Ethiopia, and she'd been walking eight hours every day for bad water. One day she comes back into her village and before she reaches home, she slips and falls and she breaks her clay pot. All of the water spills out in the ground. And in total despair, she takes the, you know, the rope that had hung, uh, that, that you know, attached the clay pot to her shoulders and she climbs a tree. She puts the rope around her neck and she jumps. She literally hangs herself in this village. Uh, right next to her broken clay pot. Because the disgrace of breaking the water, wasting the water? You know, I went and lived in that village for a week, and her, her best friend said it probably was the shame, yeah, that, that she had let her family down. You know, they would go without water that night, and that they'd, uh, this, this asset, this valuable clay pot, had been broken. So that's kind of the problem. Um, you know, that, that story impacted me so deeply. I, I saw the tree where they found her body. I, I walked in her footsteps. I saw her grave and met her family. And I wanted to kind of tell, uh, use technology to tell a different story uh, or, or a story with a different ending yeah. than Letikiros's story ended. So uh, in a nearby village, a 13-year-old girl named Salam had lost her mother, had two younger uh, siblings, and was walking for water, walking for dirty water. And the minute virtual reality kind of hit the scene, uh, we, we worked with uh, some people. We made a, a rig with eight GoPros, and we went and shot our first kind of 360 film of Salam's life-changing, transforming in six days. So you put on the headset, and as you said, you're in the swamp. Right? You're watching her get uh, dirty water on a Monday with animals, and on Tuesday mm-hmm. you're inside her house, and you learn what her house is like and how she's just so tired all the time because of her responsibilities. Uh, on Wednesday you see the drilling rig roll into the village. On Thursday you see them drilling. Uh, on Friday you see the water shooting out of the ground, and her father picks her up. Uh, in, in a crowd of people and starts swinging around uh, with her, and her uh, in his arms dancing and, and singing. And then on that last day, you see her walk up to the well and drink clean water for the first time in her life. And, you know, we, uh, we debuted this at our, at our gala yeah. uh, in the Metropolitan Museum, and 400 people put on the glasses, the headsets, at the same time, uh, we press play in simultaneity, and then eight minutes later, when the film finished, we just asked everyone for money. <laughs> we raised about two and a half million bucks to 
helped 250 villages get clean water. And we've now done huge uh, outdoor installations and, you know, probably 30, 40,000 people have seen the film. And it's, you know, it, look, it's, it's not being there. It's not the smells of, uh, of the community, but it's, it's a lot closer than me just telling you yeah. uh, or, or even showing you a still image. And, you know, there's this one, one amazing guy that, that um, had, had given a gift to Charity Water uh, for about 20 villages. And uh, he'd actually give it on the phone. And someone said, hey, why don't you come in the office? Mm-hmm. We're in Tribeca. We're in New York City. See that we're real. So he comes in, and uh, I met with him just briefly and thanked him for the, the gift and said, hey, look, you know, 15 of the villages are actually going to be done in Ethiopia. Just check out this film mm-hmm. and just you know, see what you've done, right? Multiply it by 15. So I, I go on to another meeting, and he goes into the conference room, and he watches the, the film. And eight minutes later, you know, he takes it down. He's deeply moved. He throws his wallet on the conference table and says, I haven't done enough. Hmm. And he writes uh, a $400,000 check for another 40 villages wow. to get clean water. So, you know, we believe in the power of technology. You know, sure, I'm sure people are, are you know, using VR for gaming and uh, for travel and, and, and for porn, right? Could we use that same medium to arouse empathy and generosity and compassion? You know, and, and really, over the last 10 years of, of Charity Water, that's been a, a theme, a through line. How do, we, how do we use technology to connect our donors both to the problems and the solutions, but also to what their money's doing? And we'll be right back after this quick break. The Equifax breach that impacted roughly 143 million consumers just got bigger. They've now added 2.5 million people to that list. If that's not bad enough, Yahoo announced that their 2013 breach impacted all 3 billion user accounts, triple the original estimate. You should know, once your personal information has been exposed, it doesn't just go away. Identity thieves can buy your info on the dark web for months, even years after a breach. They can use it to commit crimes in your name, even steal from your 401k. Now is the time to get protection. Sign up for LifeLock today. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code Forbes, that's Forbes, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. I've seen the film, the VR experience, and it really is an empathy machine. And I think it was my one of my first, you know, VR experiences. And it's I remember one, you know there's one part, and I think everyone should go and, and you know tr- sample this uh, Charity Water film. It's really it's eight minutes and it'll change your life. And there's one scene where you know the whole group is uh, the villagers are around the well and there's water flying. And instead of just watching on television, you look at the group of people, and you don't just see a group of people. You see these individual. You feel like you're there, and you see you know, the sweat on people's brows. You can see the veins in their necks. Like these are individual people that are really existed. This isn't just like a chorus of people or group. And it really puts you there and just, it's, it transports you. And I think that's what the best of this VR stuff can do. And it's really important for these causes to take someone from, you know, who's the abstract, yeah, someone who's in the, the met at the, you know, in the uh, upper, where the gala was, the upper East side of Manhattan and put them into, into Ethiopia is it's powerful. Yeah. And I want to talk about your journey because you your background was very different. Um, it, you know, when you first came to New York to what you do now, it both it it, it involved drinks, but different kinds of drinks. <laughs> yeah, did involve liquid. Well, I was a club promoter. I mean, I was a uh, I moved to New York City at eighteen. I was born in Philadelphia, raised in New Jersey. 
very conservative Christian family. My mom had become very ill when I was four uh, after carbon monoxide gas leak in our house. Oh. And I grew up helping to take care of her, uh, playing by all the rules. And then at 18, I just lost my mind. Uh, I moved to New York City. I grew my hair down on my shoulders. I joined a band, which didn't last long because we all hated each other. What, but, did, you, uh, what did you play? Uh, I played keyboards and wrote the music. Uh, we were kind of like... Pearl Jam meets Counting Crows. I don't know. <laughs> I realized uh, that, that if you wanted to rebel uh, in style, there was this extraordinary job here in New York City called a nightclub promoter where people would actually pay you to drink for free and all your friends would drink for free. And you just needed to get the right people inside the right nightclubs. Uh, and if you did that, you could charge astronomical amounts for, for booze. You know, we could sell a bottle of champagne that, that cost 50 for $1,000. Good margins. If the right people were there. Great margins. So basically, 10 years of my life just became a blur, blurred by. Which which clubs? Uh, I would have worked at 40 to 50 venues uh, over that that decade. So we would go into a place, you know, a couple nights a week, uh, maybe stay six months, maybe stay a year. Uh, But it was just constantly turning over, you know, bringing the crowd to different places as they got bored. How do you make a good crowd? How do you pick a good crowd? Uh, the music is important. We used to do theme parties, so we would bring in props and decorations and you know pool par- parties with you know 100 beach balls and people sitting on lifeguard chairs mm-hmm. and you know, trying to just make it interesting. Uh, so you know, the, the long story short, that over that 10-year period from 18 to 28, my life just um, really was in a tailspin. You know, I was a, a heavy drinker. I was a cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA user. I had a pornography problem, a smoking problem. Uh, gambling problem. I mean, I'd picked up pretty much every vice yeah. except heroin <laughs> that that really comes with the territory and, and seen a lot of people die uh, along the way uh, in, in nightlife. And, you know, I was really fortunate to take stock of my life at 28. Uh, I was in South America on this kind of opulent vacation where everything was going right. You know, uh, I had the Rolex and the BMW and the grand piano in my New York apartment and I partied for a living and yeah. I had a Labrador retriever and I just was so deeply unhappy, uh, deeply you know, morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, and just kind of realized I had betrayed the, the heritage, like the, the foundation that I'd been brought up with. And I needed to make a drastic change. Uh, if I continue down this did path. Did you just wake up one morning and was, was there an episode or just like you woke up like something clicked? You know, I started to, to rediscover uh, a lost faith, I think as an adult, you know, where it wasn't being force fed to me. So I was doing some reading of, you know, theology and uh, I, I actually read a book where, you know, it was someone looking to serve God and serve the poor. And I'm like, why? Well, I'm over too. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I live only for myself. Mm-hmm. So it, it took me about six months to find a way out. But, uh, I came back to New York City, and the clubs had had lost the uh, the allure and the lifestyle. Now, um, what year was this? This was two thousand and four, mm-hmm. and the lifestyle started to feel shameful. And uh, about six months later, you know, after this this moment of the vacation, um, and I remember that, that we we just partied for days and days, and I just wanted the music to stop. It was like that, and I game of musical chairs, and you know, when it did stop, I was left standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just all felt so unhealthy. So six months later, I sell uh, literally almost every possession I own. I put up 2,000 DVDs on eBay in a single lot, just trying to purge my old life. Wow. And I begin to apply to you the famous... The, you sell the dog? I didn't sell the dog. The dog actually passed away oh, okay. um, that, that, around that same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I started to apply to the famous humanitarian organizations I'd heard of, you know, the Oxfam's and Save the Children's and UNICEF's and... Uh, you know, Scott Harrison, the nightclub promoter, is now ready for service, yes. right? 
You can imagine what happened. I'm denied. Your, resu- your resume must be great. Awful, right? <laughs> awful for this context. I mean, these are serious people doing yeah. serious work. So I'm, I'm denied by, I want to say, 15 to 20 different organizations. And now I've, I've kind of stepped out in faith. I've left nightlife, and no one will take me. So finally I get an email uh, saying that this one organization uh, is headed to Liberia. And if I'm willing to go live in post-war Liberia, and if I'm willing to pay them $500 a month to volunteer, mm. then I can volunteer. So this is perfect. I mean, this is the exact opposite of my you know, selfish, hedonistic life. And uh, I have this moment. I, it was um, an opportunity on a giant hospital ship, a 500-foot uh, converted cruise liner that had been gutted and turned into a state-of-the-art hospital. Hmm. And we were sailing into post-war Liberia right after Charles Taylor's uh, 14-year bloody war had ended. And I was going to be going with volunteer humanitarian surgeons and doctors to kind of help pick up the pieces. And my role there would be to uh, be a photojournalist, to document what I saw so that hopefully they could use those images and those stories to raise more money and awareness. And I just quit everything in one night. I went out with a bang the night before I uh, started the mission and walked up the gangway of the ship. I got hammered. Did people know you're doing this? Uh, I did. I emailed everyone in nightlife. And I think I was surprised by how many people said, we wish we could go to. You know, we wish we could do something like this. You know, we're here at the same parties. Mm -hmm. We're listening to the DJ play the same songs. Um, I I was surprised uh, that people wanted to live kind of vicariously through this. So the next two years, uh, I took 50,000 photos, came across the water crisis while in Liberia. You must have been seeing some really heavy stuff. If you're, you know, photographing like, you know, the worst of the worst, I imagine. Uh, Steve, you have no idea. I mean, there was no electricity or running water in the country. There was one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. So when people got sick, you were completely out of luck. So I was documenting massive facial tumors, flesh-eating disease, people with missing, uh, missing faces, missing wow. ears. People these are things that would have never, never gotten that far in America. These just, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and I remember spending a couple of weeks in a leprosy colony. I mean, you know, I'd never – I mean, leprosy was like a concept for me growing up, uh, not being surrounded by hundreds were you and hundreds of for people. your safety and your health at some points? I, I was just all in. Um, I, I think there were some moments where uh, there were some sketchy moments, yeah. but you know, I was surrounded with this team of humanitarians, and, and we just really we were really thinking of others. I mean, it was exciting being able to help people. So I came across the water crisis there, and I saw kids drinking from swamps, and I just couldn't believe that a guy like me could sell bottles of water for ten dollars in nightclubs to people who wouldn't even open the water, mm-hmm. and yet. You know, a tenth of the world, simply because of where they were born, the situations they were born into, were drinking water that could kill them. And I, yeah, I and came everyone's, to it. Everyone's sipping Fiji water, you know, back at, back at home kind of thing. I mean, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So that uh, I, I really came to the water issue by way of these doctors and, and this 52% of, of disease stat. So that, I, I had my mission. You had your mission. So how, okay, so you're back in America now. Yeah, I'm completely broke at the time. So I'm 30 years old. I've I've come back from two years. Uh, I I took a guest list of 15,000 club friends with me. So I'm just hammering this entire time with pictures of tumors, pictures of dirty water, pictures of, you know, what we were seeing. So my list is a little smaller. Yes. (laughs) There were definitely some unsubscribes. But other people began to give money to the organization and began to actually volunteer Mm. and fly over there. So I guess what I learned there is the same skill, you know, promoting nightclubs, promoting the velvet rope. Uh, I could use that storytelling. I could use that promotion and actually do something redemptive that would benefit others. 
so I came back, you know, with this issue of water. I, I'm living on a closet floor uh, at 109 uh, Spring Street in, in uh, Soho in New York City. My old club partner took me in and said, you can live on my walk-in closet floor and my living room can be your office. Mm-hmm. And I was just making, you know, 15 presentations a day, running around with a laptop to anybody who would meet with me, showing the photos and saying, hey, I'd, I'd like to bring clean water to everyone on earth. Will you help? Will you help? And one of the things that I realized at that time was that there was a huge distrust in charity by most people. Uh, I'd come across a USA Today poll, 42% of Americans distrust charities. And uh, a recent NYU study, 70% of Americans think charities waste money. Hmm. So I had the advantage of coming from outside the system. I didn't work at the World Bank or the Global Fund. I kind of didn't know how you should run a huge institutional charity. So as I'm talking with my friends you know, I'm saying, well, what kind of charity would you want to give to? What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would the values be? And, you know, I realized the biggest problem people had was just around money. Where does my money go? Mm. Charities are black holes, right? So, yeah, so administ- little. Oh, the administration fees and all this. Oh, stuff the thing. overhead. The, you know, yeah. the charity CEOs paying themselves millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, we've all seen those specials on TV where, yeah, you know, Anderson Cooper will, like, chase some bad charity CEO to the steps of his McMansion and the door slams and Anderson's left, you know, out there with the mic. And half of America throws up their hands and say, that's why I don't give, yeah. you know, those crooks. So I just – I thought this was a huge opportunity to start with a clean sheet of paper and just build a different charitable model that would speak to some of these problems, that would speak to the disenchanted. So the first idea was really could we find a way to give away 100% of every donation we would ever take from the public in perpetuity where every penny, you know, whether you gave a dollar or a million dollars, could go directly to fund water projects. And uh, I, I remember opening up two bank accounts, I think, with 100 bucks in each of them and mm-hmm. said, you know, I'm going to figure out somehow how to raise the overhead dollars separately. And people, of course, say this is a dumb business model. There were a couple charities that had done this, but they were founded by billionaires who had, you know, endowed the charities with hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of dollars. Yeah. So that it, they take care of the, the, the electricity bills. and then Yep. The staff, things, the yeah. office, right? Mm-hmm. The insurance, the, the flights, all the, the unsexy yeah. overhead. But you were far from a billionaire. No, no, I, uh, no, I had a couple hundred dollars <laughs> that, that I had just raised from someone else. And, but I just had this vision that, that this would get these, these people to give, um, and, and they were really missing out from the experience. So I wanted to kind of share with them the experience that I'd had in, in giving my own time and, and talent and service to the people of Liberia that I met. So that was it. We'd give away 100%, and we'd be so emphatic about the integrity of the 100%. We would even pay back credit card fees. So if you donated, uh, and even today, $100 on your Amex, and I get $97, we pay back the $3 and send $100 uh, to the field. Second thing was just— You've got to have Amex give you guys a break. Uh, we've asked, believe me. Of course, if they do it for us, they'd have to do it for every charity. And so you know, the second pillar was, uh, could we use technology to prove where these projects were, what we had done with— with the money and the mm-hmm. donations. And I remember meeting the founder of Google Earth uh, right as I was starting Charity Water and just realized that he was creating a place where we could put photos and GPS of every water project we'd ever fund in the world uh, and just build a hyper-transparent organization uh, where, you know, even today with over 24,000 projects in 24 countries, you could go to REI or Best Buy, get a $50 handheld GPS device and go visit them all. Mm-hmm. The entire data set's public. Uh, and then the third thing was I, I wanted to build a beautiful brand. Uh, Nick Kristoff had written in the New York Times that people peddle toothpaste with more sophistication than all the world's life-saving causes. 
You know, the, the junk food companies can spend hundreds of millions of dollars marketing stuff that kills us and our children. And then these important life-saving the pa- causes. The packaging, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the important causes. They have anemic brands. They have lousy websites. Even today, you know, billion-dollar charities are sending me non-mobile optimized emails. Mm-hmm. You know, like, go hire someone in their 20s to do responsive design. I mean, it's... You can find a pro, some pro bono from a giant agency who's doing cigarette ads, and maybe they can do a little charity water ad. Right? It's not, it's not that hard, but that's not how, you know, a lot of these institutions think. And um, so many of them use shame and guilt to, to peddle their wares, to move people to giving. And, and I, I wondered if you could do something completely different. Could we use opportunity, inspiration? Could we tell stories of hope? Could we invite people to be a part of this uh, and, and build a beautiful, epic, creative, imaginative brand that looked more like Apple or Nike or Virgin um, than, you know, the Sally Struthers ads of, yeah. you know, of our childhood with the 800 number and the kids with flies and the slow motion looks to lock eyes with yeah, the those, camera. Those two, two in the morning ads on, uh, on ESPN, right? Right. So that was the business model. Give away 100%, prove it, use technology to do that, build a beautiful brand, and then work through local partners. You know, right. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to send anybody that looked like me to Africa or Bangladesh or India mm-hmm. or South America to build wells. So our job would be to raise the awareness and money, get people to care about an issue that doesn't face them but is an emergency for mm-hmm. 660 million people. And then uh, get the work done through the locals. I just believe for the work to be sustainable, it had to be led by Rwandans in Rwanda, by Ethiopians in Ethiopia, by um, you know, Guatemalans in, mm-hmm. in Guatemala. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and it seems like a good idea to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code FORBES for 10% off. Hi, I'm Allie Hilfiger. And I'm Steve Hash. And we're the hosts of Sit-In on Podcast One. Join us as we travel around the world visiting creative people in their homes, studios, and the places they work to discuss their story process and basically everything in between. We're sitting down with the biggest names in the world of fashion, art, and music like Tommy Hilfiger, Gigi Hadid, Brian Adams, Martin Lawrence Ballard, and Zana Roberts. Check out new episodes of Sit-In every week exclusively on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. So... You know, you you had a goal of having the administrative work completely funded. You wanted a beautiful brand. You wanted a slick website. You wanted full transparency, and you had a few hundred dollars. What got this going? What was you know Scott Harrison's big break that kind of got Charity Water from? What got you? What got you out of the uh, sleeping in the closet uh, to you know this great brand you have, and you have these great headquarters right down in in, in Tribeca, and what got that started? I mean, it was pitch after pitch after pitch, and it was a lot of no's, and then someone says, yes, here's $500, and then no, 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 and here's $2,500, and no, 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 and here's $5,000, and you know, no, 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 here's $100. Uh, it, was, it was really this uh, constantly broke, constantly running out of money, constantly struggling. Uh, it's funny, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment and, and going back through all of these old emails. I mean, the theme was we never had enough money mm. in the beginning. 
And, uh, you know, I was scrapping for the overhead money. That was hard. I mean, it's hard enough building a charity, let alone <laughs> two bank accounts. Where Building a charity where you can't actually use the money you raise to yeah. pay anybody uh, and having to do all that separately. And, you know, you, you know the story, but about a year and a half in, uh, we'd raised millions of dollars for clean water projects. So that was working, the 100%, the purity of that was working. But we were about to go uh, bankrupt in the other account. Mm. We had a few weeks left to make payroll. And it was, uh, it was a really interesting moment. And the advice I was getting from people at the time was, hey, go borrow. You had $881,000 for the water projects. They said, go borrow. That's eight months of payroll. Write an IOU. Pay it back later. Or get a loan with that as collateral. Or get a loan, right? Go. And I just remember... Uh, being so offended by that. I mean, if we borrowed against that or if we borrowed one penny of the public's money, you know, our integrity would be compromised. It'd be a crack in the foundation. We might as well all, you know, resign in shame. So I was actually going to wind down the charity and cry business model failure. Mm-hmm. And I'd been praying a lot with, you know, very little faith for some sort of crazy miracle. And wouldn't you know, at that time, a complete stranger walks in the office uh, internet entrepreneur that had just sold his company sits with me for two hours. I remember thinking the meeting went terribly. How did he find you? Uh, I had emailed him cold six months previously off the domain registry uh, of wow. the who is dot net about something completely different. Not not as an ask for money and ask to use his social network to to spread awareness. And uh, he he walks in at this moment of kind of crisis for the organization. Doesn't know it's any moment of crisis. And then after a two hour meeting, says, uh, "Really love what you're doing." wires a million dollars into the overhead account. So we go from running out of oxygen, almost bankrupt, to 13 months of capital. Wow. And uh, we were able to steward and use that extra time uh, now to, to build an amazing network of 122 families that all on three-year cycles fund the, the total overhead and the 80 staff in New York, all the flights, the office. Um, so it, yeah, it was almost lights out. Uh, a very generous stranger walked in, uh, who's, who's become a huge part of our life and our, our success. And, and, and you've had a lot of, I mean, you're very active in the tech communities. I think we first met at a big tech conference and you have a lot of technology backers, which is great. Um, and they give more than money. They give you expertise. They give you networks, you know, both personal and, um, I mean, both human networks and, you know, technology. What was it? Why do you think charity water kind of attracts the, this group? There's a culture of innovation at the organization. It's a core value. And I I think the values of transparency, you know, resonated with uh, the founders of Twitter and Facebook and Spotify and WordPress. And, you know, a lot of these uh, early entrepreneurs that became our advocates and actually started paying for for the overhead. So in that 120 families, 60 of them are entrepreneurs that people Mm -hmm. would have heard of that they're saying, look, we get it. Go hire your next software engineer. Go hire your next water program expert. Go pay for those flights to monitor these, these water projects and make sure they're sustainable. Um, so I think it was the value of innovation, you know, the, the, the first charity really to, to embrace VR. Um, you know, we, I remember when we crowdsourced drilling rigs, these million-dollar drilling rigs in, in one of the countries, we mounted GPS trackers to them. We built a whole UI where people could track the rig's location in real time, and then we gave a Twitter account. So our you know, Ethiopian drillers press a button, and yeah. it tweets its location. So it's just this thought of... How do we use technology? Uh, how do we build a hyper-transparent organization? You know, when, when Apple Pay released, we were part of that pilot. You know, I wanted people to be able mm-hmm. to donate to Charity Water in three seconds with their thumb. Yep, that's pretty good. So just, you know, if it's, if it's new and if we think we can use it for good, uh, we're, we're going to be there. 
How in the early days when you were, you know, you said you had no money, no oxygen. How did you, as a new charity, hire people? How did you attract people to to the cause? Pure passion and vision. Uh, you know, our second employee, our first employee, helped work on water projects. You know, came out of the UN. You know, took a pay cut. Our second employee uh, was was our creative director who I later married, actually, and worked with for nine years. That's a, a much longer story. but No, no good deed goes unpunished, right? At the time, she was working at a creative agency, took a pay cut, gave up all of her health care benefits. You know, just, uh, but but the, the agency motto was create desire, and she was just sick of working on lipstick brands. And, uh, well, I won't be specific, but, you know, a bunch of brands that, that she just felt weren't really making a difference in the world. So coming across uh, an organization where she could use her design skills, her creative skills in the service of others was worth taking the pay cut and, and giving up all the healthcare and just the shot of it. So there was a lot of sacrifice. There were, there was a lot of living on couches, uh, eating ramen noodles, you know, as is true with so many startups and, and so many of these stories. And then it just starts to get a little more traction and a little more traction. And, uh, you do some events and you get invited to speak a few places and people respond and, you know, 10 years later now, um, over a million people have given uh, well over a quarter of a billion dollars uh, to, to the organization. And uh, you know, we've been able to get seven, wow. 7.3 million people clean well, how, water. What was the number? 250, about $250 million? Yeah, over 265 or wow. so. How many wells about? Uh, 23,000. What was your first? What was the first well you guys? The dug? first well. It's funny. I was and just you, there. And did you go? And did you go? I so I I, I was in. Um, well, Charity Water started uh, day one. Was in a nightclub. It was a party nightclub. I wasn't very creative at the time, and uh, maybe in a way subconsciously wanted to kind of you know have a turn and redeem put a, put an end point on the ten years of debauchery mm-hmm. and use that for good. So I threw my thirty first birthday party in a nightclub. Gave my friends open bar for an hour. By the way, did anyone come over from the nightclub world to work for you? Eventually, I wish I could say that was true. <laughs> uh, about 700 people came. Okay. They all tossed in 20 bucks at the door, so we had 15 grand. And we took that to northern Uganda to a refugee camp called Bobi, where 31,638 people were registered, and they were all drinking from a huge swamp. Uh, we would have liked to do more projects. We did a few projects, but then we emailed those 700 people mm-hmm. with photos, GPS, and a video of clean water from their $20 donations. Uh, just a couple of months ago, I got to go back to that first well and see it still working uh, over 10 years later, which was a really powerful personal experience. Uh, we reckon it's delivered about 10 million liters of water uh, for, you know, the, the cost of $10,000. You know, if, if it was, uh, if we were bottling it and buying at the deli, you know, we're talking about $20 million of water the way we value it wow. uh, for a $10,000 investment 10 years ago. So... That, that's been really cool, just knowing all of the lives that that single pump, you know, has saved over, over the last decade. And, uh, and that's what we wake up and, and, and try to do every single day. You know, Charity Water this year, we'll get about a million people clean water for the very first time, which, which feels like a little uh, to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's a million out of 600 million but I was at Madison Square Garden for a concert last week, and Madison Square Garden's capacity is about 19,000. And I looked at my wife and said, actually, we do 20,000 a week. So it's this entire stadium every seven days is what, you know, if you break a million down into 52 weeks. So mm-hmm. it's actually, um, you know, it, it's a big impact. It's 2,850 people every single day. So that's our main KPI. How do we... How do we get more people clean water? It is an emergency. You know, there are women right now 
walking eight hours a day to, to water that is potentially going to kill their children today or next week or next month. And we can stop it. We know how to solve the problem. That's the beauty of water. No one on earth needs to drink dirty water. No. It's not like this disease, you know, some of these diseases that we're looking for the cure uh, in test tubes and labs, you know, it may exist years in the future. We actually, we, we have the solutions. There's no one size fits all solution, but we know how to bring every human clean water. How do you guys close that gap? I mean, it's not one organization that one person can do it. Um, I know there's multiple water organizations. We had a, um, we had, um, Matt Damon came by to Forbes recently and and spoke about his water project and you know obviously the, you know this is a big deal for UNICEF and Oxfam and the Red Cross and you name it is there kind of like a is everyone kind of doing their own little thing are people to get are there water conventions where everyone gets together and maybe kind of you know you know combines resources or figure out a plan or is it kind of it everyone on their own and everyone has their own little corner of of, of influence. I think it's both. Uh, there's definitely coordination. I mean, we're you know presenting and, and attending the big water conferences around the world, so we know the players. I mean, Charity Water works in partnership uh, currently with 12 other organizations, mm-hmm. so we're funding 12 local partners across the portfolio. We've worked with 25 partners since we started. Um, I think some are focused on urban, some are focused on per- peri-urban. We're fo- focused exclusively on rural, mm-hmm. so we're after those 82%. Uh, and we're all really cheering each other on. Um, you know, if Charity Water is going to give a million people clean water this year, we'd, we'd love for that to be two and three million, and we continue to invite people into that. But we, we want other organizations to, to scale, to, to take on new countries, to, uh, to increase their impact. So there's, I don't think there's a sense of competition or you know, scarcity mentality. I mean, at least from my perspective, uh, the more you give, the more you give. Yeah. So, you know, it'd be better for someone to give to a couple water organizations than to none at all. What is the, if you had like the magic wand, like for you guys to be the most effective possible, is the biggest barrier, is it, is it money for the wells? Is it the amount of people that can drill wells? How fast you can drill a well? Like what is the big obstacle that you're facing right now? Everything you said is a challenge yeah. uh, because, you know, money for sure. But then at some point, uh, the money, you know, if you handed me a $500 million check right now, we wouldn't know how to spend it this year. Right? We would need to go buy more drilling rigs, hire more hydrologists, increase the capacity of our partners. Kind of like if you were making a, a phone, there's a certain amount of orders that your factories could fulfill. Yeah. If you 10x that, they're like, um, yeah, I'll get it to you in three years or four years. It's like, it's like Tesla. They have, a, they have too many orders and not enough. They're trying to build the factories right now. Exactly. So think of us in the same way that as, as we raise more awareness and money, as more people come in and care about this issue, we then... Uh, are impacting the capacity. We're buying more drilling rigs. We bought 45 trucks for our partner in Ethiopia. Uh, we're we're helping them find and, and hire hydrologists. Uh, we're we're paying for uh, strategic planning in these countries to to actually uh, come up with full coverage maps. What does it look like? Not just to dot the the landscape with a bunch of wells, but to get to full coverage. In we're doing that now in, in 12 different districts around the world. So uh, a lot of challenges. One of the big challenges that we've tried to take on lately is this sustainability challenge. There's probably some people listening saying, oh, that's great. You know, your first well happens to be working 10 years later. Yeah. But you got 23,000 wells. How many actually are working? You know, wells break, right? Has the, you work with a lot of, lot of tech in terms of, you know, marketing and, and, you know, logistics and transparency. How has the actual physical drilling tech, is it good enough? The, the drilling tech's fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, it's not dissimilar than if, 
you know, our, our friends who buy houses upstate in the Hudson Valley and they pay $15,000 for a well driller to come poke a hole in their background and uh, backyard and then connect their nuclear family to the well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this, this is actually something that's really familiar. We're kind of doing that, but we're connecting 300 people to yeah. the source of clean water. Uh, in these villages, so the the sustainability challenge that we that we we basically knew where all of our wells were. We knew well springs, right? All the different technologies. We knew they were all working on day one. But if you ask me about the Bertoni well five years later, right? I just wouldn't know because yeah. we wouldn't have gone back to that. So we asked ourselves uh, about four years ago, could we you know use technology to address this challenge and came up with this idea, what if we could build a sensor that we could retrofit our wells and install in new ones, and it would monitor the flow uh, every time someone pumped that well uh, or turned on that tap stand and the water flew, came through the pipes. Um, and then it would alert us back in New York, not only that the project was working many mm-hmm. years later, but how much water was flowing and, and when it was being used. So we approached Google with this. They wound up giving us a $5 million innovation oh, grant, great. which was the largest grant that, at that time they'd ever given to a nonprofit. And we worked with about 20 labs. We made some really crappy sensors. Uh, we made some solar sensors that didn't work. And then we eventually uh, created a, a pilot sensor that we made for 100 bucks. Uh, that's protecting a $10,000 asset. Hmm. Uh, it uses a 10-year lithium battery. Uh, it uses GSM. Uh, it can you know, withstand heat of up to you know, 130 degrees and you know, negative uh, something. And, uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's all open it's source. Hard, it's, it's hardy. It's hardy. Yeah, yes. we've driven trucks over it. Uh, they've fired guns at it. I mean, it's it's this kind of very uh, boring-looking gray box. Mm-hmm. So it looks like of no value. So you unscrew the four uh, uh, bolts from the well. You put on this box, and, and we've installed 3,000 now in the pilot. And it's the most amazing thing. So the minute we dropped 3,000 sensors in Africa, we had the largest rural data set of water supply in the history of the world. No one ever bothered to do this. And we knew that our functionality was at 91%. So not 100%, not 50%. Uh, we have 9% of these are problems. It's an A-, it's an a minus, right? 91%? A minus. Well, and you know now which ones to fix, yeah. right? So at the same time, we started training local mechanics, setting them up in shop, buying them motorcycles with GPS trackers, and they now go make the service calls. So think of it as Apple Care on wheels or a geek squad. Yeah, because I'd say you're not, besides giving people water and more time, you're also creating like a mini economy, it sounds. Sure, local jobs. So uh, in fact, you know, today we, we help support over 1,500 local, surger, uh, local surgeries, local salaries mm-hmm. uh, around the world. So yeah, so that's, that's the, the state of the world as we see it. We're about to drop a sensor in Nepal now, which is completely different. It's not a well, it's a pipe sensor. Same thing. Um, and we can see when women are, are using the, the water, how much they're using. I mean, what we're seeing is women are getting up at 4.30 in the morning to take a big mm. rush of clean water. It's the cool of the day. We see these huge dips when the sun is at its hottest mm. and then afternoon rushes. So it's, it's really an amazing thing. Of those 9% that are broken, some of them are, you know, I think of them as, as cars. There are cars that are in the Meineke or the, the muffler shop. Mm. And then there are cars that are in the junkyard. Yeah. Um, we think it's about half and half. About half of the 9% have serious problems that we need to go out and redrill mm-hmm. and address, which we're in the process of assessing. And then the others uh, are just in a, in a uh, state of maintenance, mm-hmm. a couple-day maintenance and being brought online. But the information is power. Wow. Uh, being able to hold ourselves accountable for better, higher-quality, sustainable work, being able to hold our partners accountable, and just knowing what's out there. So 
We're excited about that. Well, real quick tangent. I don't want to go too far with this. You always mention women. Why it seems like in, across all these different nations and cultures, it is the women and the children that are getting the water. Stephen, it just is culturally. Uh, it's it's really frustrating when you're out there. Um, I, I've never really seen a man. I've been to 66 countries now. Uh, I've never really seen men get water. It is just culturally the job of the women and the girls. Uh, if that's not bad enough, it's then their responsibility to go get firewood to cook to do the cleaning. And, you know, the men in many of these cultures are, are responsible for providing food for the family. So mm-hmm. they're out there farming, uh, providing an income. Many of them are out there working. Some of them will be, you know, working on roads or, or, or construction. Uh, but it's the women who are taking care of the house. It's the women and the girls. So that's why it's so amazing when we can give women this time back. Uh, the women become entrepreneurs often. Or, or sometimes they just say, we're better, we're better mothers. We yeah. get more time to spend with our kids. What are you looking forward to in the next year? What's what's goal number? What's 2018's goal for, uh, or what's your focus this year in Charity Water? Well, one of the big things that happened at the 10-year mark was we realized that uh, we had built a one-time donation business, really. About a million people you know, giving over a quarter of a billion dollars, but once. You know, our repeat donors uh, were, were about this, the standard uh, sector average, maybe about 10% uh, every year. Mm-hmm. You know, would come back and make a small donation and, uh, we we thought, you know, for us to actually uh, create a bigger impact, for us to scale our impact, to go from a million people getting clean water a year to two million people a year to three million, uh, we need to build a community of people who will stick with us, not just every year, but every month. Mm-hmm. So uh, at our 10-year mark, we launched a, a brand new uh, subscription product, uh, a subscription community called The Spring. And we just said, look, you know, the average person has 11 subscriptions now. We've got our Netflix, our Spotify, um, you know, we've got our newspapers, we've got our magazines. We, we are used to this. We have all of these subscriptions that give a, us benefit. Everyone has their Forbes subscription, so it's... it's everyone has a Forbes yeah. subscription, uh, and, and we get benefit from these. We're, we're reading it. We're consuming the content. What if we could create a, a subscription for good where 100% of the, the benefit, whether it's $30 a month mm-hmm. or $100 a month or it's a college student giving $10 a month, we're 100% of this passed on to people that need clean water. And then our job is to show impact, is to show the community, uh, the people that are getting clean water. So we launched that. Uh, we have about 10,000 subscribers just in the pilot from 80 countries. And I think that, as I look to the end of this year and next year, that is going to be the key to our success, is growing that. People that, you know, that don't just hear a podcast or, you know, read a magazine article and see a TV commercial and say, oh, cool, here's 100 bucks but actually that, that want to get educated, that want to, to be loyal to an organization, to understand the values and the, the mission and you know, be faithful month in and month out. So I'm super excited about that, and uh, we're putting a lot of energy and, and resources. We have a team in Ethiopia right now that's shooting unique content just for those subscribers, mm-hmm. letting them know where their money's going. And if I was a club promoter, just, I was anyone that wanted to get involved in a charity, maybe start one of my own, what advice would you give someone who wants to give, make a jump in their life or a change um, and do something like this? Well, for me, I had to go there. I, I really had to immerse myself in, in the problem and the solution. And, and in some ways, I had, you know, I had this perfect mix. I was with these accredited, incredible humanitarian doctors and surgeons, and I was in a country of such extreme need. And I saw these two things come together. Uh, and lives being transformed. So I don't think I could have done it if I just went to visit Africa for a week or, you know, went to safari and then spent a day, yeah. you know, touring the slums. Uh, you know, for me, the immersion was really, uh, I think, needed to to change my life and decide that this is what I wanted to dedicate the rest of my life to. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I would say, you know, try and find that opportunity to, to really go deep. Maybe it's water, maybe it's hunger, maybe it's a justice issue, you know, whatever that thing is that that's in people's gut that says just, it's not okay. Um, go deep and, and find a way to make an impact. And speaking of making impact, anyone listening now that wants to learn more about what you guys are doing at Charity Water, what can they do to find out? Where should they go? We're just at charitywater.org. Uh, and if you wanted to learn about the spring, it's just charitywater.org slash the spring. Awesome. Well, this is a great interview. Scott Harrison, founder and CEO of Charity Water. He's also, again, former club promoter, but he can still throw a really good party. He always has a great gala in New York City in December to you know raise money for the cause. So once a party promoter, always a party promoter. But different you know, reasons, different too. promotions here. It's all great. Uh, Scott, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.